I'm Tavin Nasir, and this is Leadership Biz Cafe, a podcast that provides insights and tools to help leaders take on the challenges and opportunities found in leading today's workplaces. Leadership Biz Cafe is brought to you by Tavin Nasir Leadership, our leadership firm that offers keynotes and corporate trainings in both in-person and virtual settings that will help you to improve the way you lead and guide your organization's growth and future successes. Now, if you've been enjoying my podcast and the insights and tools I've been sharing on how you can improve your leadership craft, and you're interested in having me expand on them with your team and organization, I'd like to invite you to check out my speaking page on our website at tavernasir.com to learn about some of the topics I could discuss at your upcoming event. Well, this is my last episode for 2023. And I wanted to use this episode to do a year-end retrospective of some of my favorite moments and insights shared by some of my guests over the past 12 months. And I'll be honest, this wasn't easy, not only because it's hard to narrow down which guest I want to highlight here, but even when I narrowed down the list of guests I wanted to focus on, it was still a challenge to decide which of their fascinating and key points on leadership I wanted to highlight. So don't be surprised if you find yourself wanting to listen to the rest of these conversations after hearing some of these highlights. I figured a great place to begin this end-of-year retrospective of 2023 was with episode 133, where I spoke with my colleague and friend John Baldoni about his book, Grace Under Pressure. As with all my guests, it was hard to pick which moment to highlight because John and I covered a wide range of timely topics around leadership that I know my listeners would appreciate learning from. In the end, I chose this moment from our conversation, where we talk about one of the things great leaders do is take care of people. And I'm glad you brought up those three things good leaders do. Namely, they take care of their employees, they take care of themselves, and they help ready their organization and their people for what's to come in the future. So I think a great place for us to start is with that first section of what good leaders do, and that they take care of their employees because If we look at some of the examples in the news about performance and the actions of those in leadership positions, we're not seeing a lot of caring for employees out there, which is why we saw things like the great resignation and quiet quitting. So to start our discussion here of leaders putting the needs of their employees first, I'd love to hear your thoughts, John, on what's missing here and how do we get to that place where not only leaders take care of their employees, but that we're fostering a sense of community that moves the focus from individual interests to serving a larger purpose that defines our collective efforts? Well, grace becomes the the catalyst for the good, as I said. And so every leader, regardless of what the decisions are, I mean, excuse me, what the conditions are, means that you have to uh, work for joint purpose to enable people to bring out the best in them. Grace becomes that facilitator. And I'm glad you touched on the word of community because I have the sub-theme throughout the book of creating community. And what do I mean by community? It's a place that people belong. Getting back to your very first question, um, purpose is our why, as many have said, and it stimulates our vision, which is our becoming. And it uh, creates our a sense of mission, which is our doing. And then it also sparks our values. But more importantly, that is where grace enters. Grace becomes, as you noted, the how. And so when we take care of our people, we're acting on the values slash grace equation. And that means we are thinking about our people 
as people, as human beings, um, as assets, good, but more importantly, as contributors. And you noted the word belonging, which I think is so critical. Now, Amy Edmondson um, is, you know, the pioneer in the concept of psychological safety. That is how you build community, when people feel safe to voice their opinions, where they can be heard. Now, important in community does not mean that we all think and act alike, nor should we. But we feel that there's something holding us together that is strong. People feel that in their faith. They feel that in volunteer organizations. And I believe they can also feel that in their uh, enterprise, whatever they're doing. And when we want people to come to work, uh, we want them to really be excited and enthused about what they do, to have, to use an old fashioned word now, it's engagement, highly engaged. But you can't do it with tricks and and, and just simply incentives. You do it with a re- with purposeful um, actions that show people what the big picture is all about and how they contribute to it. Now, the the quotient that I'm focusing on now is the sense of grace, which is the goodness that we show. Um, grace facilitates connection, and that's what we need for community. That's what we need for a sense of belonging. And belonging solidifies our values so that we can achieve our vision and our mission. The next leadership insight I want to highlight here comes from episode 143, where I welcome Adam Bryant back to my show. I was delighted to speak with Adam again, not just because we're both from Montreal and experts on leadership, but because the focus of our conversation this time was on what we need to do to make that journey towards becoming a leader. And I wanted to share this segment from our conversation because it addresses a common problem people have with leaders today, and it revolves around the subject of leadership and communication. So another big learning curve people have to address is becoming a better communicator, which Honestly, given the large number of communication channels we've had over the past decade where we've had to learn and master how to communicate in these different ways, and the fact that we're not doing a better job is quite telling, especially when you consider how often there's all these surveys where leaders are asked to rate themselves on their strengths or how well they do a certain thing, and more often than not, the majority will all say, well, I'm a very effective communicator. But in that context of communication... One area that most leaders don't do a great job of is offering both recognition and feedback to those under their care. So for those who are thinking of making that leap to leader, what are some things they need to work on and what are the mindset shifts they should be ready to make to become a more effective communicator, particularly around feedback and recognition? Sure. And and let's take uh, each of those separately. I mean, feedback to me is not like the recognition is more, it's always a positive message, right? But feedback is more that kind of constructive feedback. Look, maybe you could have done something better and let's start there. Um, And I think we just need to be honest. Most people are often reluctant to do that because they don't necessarily know how the person's going to react, right? And so I think, you know, most of the surveys show that people are starved for feedback, they're they're starved for recognition, and managers think it's like, well, you know, I pay them to do this job, and they, they don't want to give them the feedback because they don't necessarily know how they're going to react. Um, and so some of the, the best tips that I've heard from CEOs, one of them is just being, when you start working with somebody, being very clear up front, say, hey, like, I'm going to give you a lot of feedback. I feel like it's my job to give you feedback. 
And if you do something well, I'm going to tell you. And if you could have done something better, I'm going to tell you. But I, I think a big part of what people need to do is is set this tone so that people are somewhat desensitized <laughs> to feedback because there's always this quirk in business. I mean, we go through the early years of our lives getting feedback all the time, right? You, you, you know, in school, you get feedback from your teachers, whether you're playing football or dance or whatever, you're getting feedback from your coaches or instructors. You, you pay professors and colleges to give you feedback, but people get into the context of work and it's like, wait a minute, what? You're giving me feedback? And and there's all this sort of, you know, uh, there's all this stuff that gets heaped onto it that makes it a much bigger and more fraught conversation. So I think the first step is just let people know that you're going to give them feedback and just give people a do it in the moment because when it gets bottled up and delayed that's when it becomes something more i think another key tip about giving feedback is signaling to people that you are on their side right and that your goal is to help them get better um and so if you frame everything in terms of like okay this is okay at, at this level but if you want to get to the next level you need to know that you need to get better on this and here is how and here is why and that way they feel like okay they're trying to help you. The, it is much more of a coaching relationship because you have to disarm people to get them to be open to the feedback. Because if a lot of the times when people are getting feedback, their brain kind of shuts down. They're not really hearing it, but they're going to be much more open to it if they, again, feel like they're helping you. And in terms of recognition, I, I think another important insight is a lot of managers and leaders probably have this feeling like, I give my people a ton of, you know, like, recognition. I'm always saying at a boy, at a girl and 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 great job. But there is a perception gap, right? This there is this perception gap between how much feedback you recognition you think you're giving and how much people are perceiving that they are getting. So the first message is do more. And in terms of in terms of effective recognition, I think you do need to sort of double click on what that looks like because recognition is not just like, hey, great job, right? People can send those emails all day long, but I think recognition is much more powerful when it's specific. So some examples of that is give people feedback on the how of what they did, like really call out the way you did this was so effective um, or tell them, look, you play such a crucial role on the team and what that is, and we really appreciate you or calling out the impact of their work. So they say, this is because of what you did, this is what happened. And that kind of recognition people crave. And if you want to build followership as a leader, you're going to get a lot of it if you do that. So one of the big topics around leadership in the workplace this year revolved around the debate over employees returning to the office full time versus offering some form of a hybrid work solution where employees work remotely for part or most of their work week. That's why I enjoyed my conversation with Tamara Sanderson in episode 137 about her book, Remote Works, and what organizations need to do to make any kind of remote work offering effective for both the employee and the organization. But I think this particular point from our conversation is worth another listen because it's a point that's often not considered or discussed thoughtfully in the RTO versus remote work debate. So Tamara, we were just talking about connection, and I had mentioned how there's a growing concern about loneliness and remote work, and you did say you had some thoughts on it, which I'm sure our listeners would appreciate hearing, 
Because irrespective of those leaders who are using it as an argument against offering remote work opportunities, I'm sure there are leaders who would like to offer their employees a choice, but are understandably concerned about these reports of rising loneliness and the potential impact it will have on their employees. So, do you have some ideas or suggestions for what leaders can do to address these concerns? Yeah. So, first of all, I would say I think loneliness makes sense, actually. And so, we are in a weird transition period where the last 50 years, a lot of our social lives and a lot of our decisions outside of work were impacted by work. So, let's say, for example, I grew up in a suburb of Dallas. And I ended up moving to a lot of places for work. So I moved to San Francisco with Google. I moved to Singapore with Google. Um, I worked in private equity and I moved to Boston. And so I had to, you know, change my whole world to fit around work and the commute and what hours I needed to be there. A lot of my friends ended up being around work because it made it the easiest way to socialize. So at Google, my boyfriend, for example, was also a Googler. A lot of my friends were also Googlers. It was just the easiest way to socialize if they also worked with you because that meant they, they were living nearby. They were had a similar schedule. They could talk about similar things. They were also in the tech industry. Now we have this world where you know those constraints of our day-to-day work has changed. We can live in different places. If you are able to work remotely, you can work in different places. You can travel if you want to. You can work at different times. You don't have to be in this office every day with certain people for eight hours. And so all of that has changed. And so you know, we do have to come up with different ways to get our daily socialization if it's not just given to us through an organization. I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think all of your friends and all of your social contacts should all be related to work. In fact, I think over time that can be very dangerous um, from all your eggs in one basket. As you can see, um, I worked at Google for a really long time and there were just layoffs and I had good friends that were laid off from Google. And I think that makes it even harder with a layoff if that company has been your entire life for 12 years. because all your friends were there and you moved with Google and you worked in different offices and all the friends that came to your wedding also worked at Google. And then all of a sudden, one day you get an email and you're laid off because the tech sector has, you know, had a a, um, a recession or whatnot the last, you know, six or 12 months. And so I actually think creating more diversity in who you're hanging out with and who you're socializing is important. But I think actually there it requires putting in that effort And it's not going to be just given to you through an organization. So that's the first thing. Um, But I think there's a lot of, this is the one thing that Allie and I really like to talk about. And it it seems common sense, but if you've not been introduced to it, it it might feel a little bit strange. Um, There used to be a lot of Gallup studies that used to say, like one of the best indicators for a retention was if you had a friend at work. And I think that is true. Um, But I think now with remote work, it actually looks different and it's it's important to have a friend to work with. And so by this, I mean, you don't necessarily have to work with people that are at your organization. Um, so for example, Ali and I, we were roommates in Mexico City for a while. We would often work together and we worked at very different tech companies. She was at DuckDuckGo, I was at Automatic. We had different jobs. I was in corporate development and partnerships and she was in HR, but we would meet at a cafe and we would do, you know, do some, some of our own work, get on our calls and we might chat afterwards, but I still had a friend to work with. I still had that socialization during the workday, 
but it didn't come from me being in an office and running into somebody at the water cooler. And so I do think we have to be intentional about creating those moments throughout our day. But if you're just missing kind of that background noise of people being around, actually maybe what you need is a local coffee shop that you go to once or twice a week and you know the the barista and you see some common faces in there. Uh, or, you know, maybe you you miss doing activities with people. And so maybe you end up joining an exercise class in the middle of the day that you go to that's in your neighborhood that is not related to work, but you see similar faces there. So there are all kinds of ways to combat loneliness, but I don't think it's a company's job to solve that problem for you. Because I think we're seeing loneliness is a common issue across Gen Z and high school kids. I think it is a part of our society right now. And it is not isolated to just remote work. It just has happened at the same time. Before I move to the next interview highlight from 2023, can I just point out how much I love Tamara's pivot she shares here that we need to think about work connections, not just being about having a friend at work, but having a friend to work with. It's these kinds of mindset shifts that are so powerful, even though they seem so subtle as a concept. And speaking of this need to evolve our approach to work and the kind of workplace conditions we need to create to ensure our organization's long-term growth, I want to move now to episode 141, where I spoke with Bertina Ceccarelli and Suzanne Tedrick about their book, Innovating for Diversity. In this segment from our conversation, I asked Bertina and Suzanne to share their thoughts around a challenge leaders and organizations will face soon, if not sometime in the latter half of 2024, then for sure in 2025. In other words, this is something that's right around the corner that you need to start planning for today. So, Bertina and Suzanne, I'd like to take what we've been talking about and apply it to a specific challenge organizations face and will continue to face in the years ahead, and that is retaining and growing the talent pool within their organization. Now, since the start of the year, much of the focus was on companies laying off thousands of workers in anticipation of a slowing global economy. And yet, as we all know, any kind of economic slowdown is followed by a period of growth. And unlike in years past, the big challenge for organizations will be find the people they need to help them grow. And part of that will require making a more concerted effort to hire, develop, and promote people from underrepresented groups. So what are some of the common challenges minoritized groups face in moving into leadership positions? And how can we use those innovation cultural characteristics to help expand who we identify and develop as future leaders in our organization? So I think specifically when thinking about underrepresented groups and leading into more senior or leadership positions, I think there's a, a number of reasons why we, we see this gap. Uh, going back to our conversation about equity, again, not so much the conversation about pay, but really thinking about opportunity equity. So are they given challenges? Are they giving projects that are meaningfully going to help them to build their skill set to increase their uh, sphere of influence and to meet others who can be potential mentors or sponsors? Or do we have them in these roles where, again, the measurement of impact is very, very small? We're not giving them that type of exposure to other people, other things. 
Um, and so what we'll, what we've seen during the research of our book is that while we're getting better at finding uh, underrepresented groups and bringing them in perhaps in more entry level or, or first time professional jobs, we're not doing a great job of growing them uh, beyond mid-level and keeping them. So I think it's very important for leaders and, and anyone who's going to be the, the manager of, of people to understand that, yes, you do need to balance the needs of the organization, but you also need to meet people where they are to be successful. If people need mentoring, if people need strong sponsorship, and I know this is slightly controversial, but if people need to have remote work, uh, you know, we need to be a little bit more mindful of what does it take for this person to shine and be successful and where can I possibly meet them to be able to do that versus I've got numbers, I've got deadlines and, you know, it's either this or or nothing. So being really more empathetic about th these different populations who are looking to, to advance within their organization. You know, I think one really great example of what Suzanne is talking about is the case study of Zendesk and where they observed, we are not promoting women engineers uh, at the level that we would like. And when we look at the senior executive team, um, we are really thin on women. So, so what can we do to help change that? Uh, and it would have been, you know, one approach is to go hire a couple of very senior women from the outside. Uh, but they also took the approach, let us find what we could do to nurture talent from within. And it took a couple of iterations, but they stuck with this and they landed on a highly successful mentorship program. It was very structured, required support from across the organization, for volunteers to sign up to say, I want to do this. I want to be a part of it. Uh, I am willing to go through some uh, deep training to really absorb what is required of me specifically within the Zendesk mentoring program. Yeah, there was a whole set of activities, right, that really built the leadership skills through mentoring for the women who had been identified as high potential. And today, right, they have a, a higher than industry average percentage of women in leadership levels. They continue to invest in the program. It's just a really good, good example of it's easy to say, oh, we're going to do a mentoring program, right? But to do it well and to something Suzanne said earlier, assign metrics and really have uh, ownership accountability for the, for the person who's running that program, that's vital for it to be successful in the case of Zendesk it is. Continuing in this vein of not just being reactive, but being more responsive to changes that are happening outside your organization's proverbial walls. Another conversation I enjoyed over the past 12 months was speaking with entertainment CEO James Burstall in episode 147 about his book, The Flexible Method, where he shares his own company's playbook for how leaders and their organizations can be better prepared for the next global crisis. And let's face it, over the past decade, we've seen a number of crises that not only impacted organizations financially, but in the case of the pandemic, it also forced us to change the way we work. But as James pointed out in our conversation, a crisis doesn't inherently have to be something we dread. In fact, I love how in this segment from my conversation with James, 
He advocates for how one of the smartest things you can do in a crisis is to use it as an opportunity to strengthen your collective creativity. I think you've set us up perfectly to talk about the next element of the flexible method that I wanted to discuss with you, James. And that is when you're in the middle of that crisis, you need to supercharge your creativity. Now, as someone who works in the entertainment industry, I think many of our listeners will see it as a given that your team and you are naturally creative. So for those who might not see themselves as being creative, what advice do you have for them for how to use a crisis as an opportunity for them to tap into their collective creativity to find a better path forward, to kind of in what you just shared in your story, find those new paths, those new opportunities that you might have not considered and then realize over time becomes this new avenue for you to grow and achieve success. Okay, well, for starters, I think everybody has the capacity to be creative. We just have to be given permission and we have to give ourselves permission. So I'm a big advocate for calling meetings where we've got the receptionist and we've got the cleaner and we've got the top executive producers pitching in ideas because we're all experts in television, for example. We all watch thousands and thousands of hours of it. So why wouldn't some of us have amazing outside the box ideas, even if we are the receptionist in a TV company or indeed work somewhere else? So I do think there are untapped hidden potential in our teams. So I would absolutely first up, go to my team and, and go, you know what, who's got a crazy idea? Who's got a big idea? Let's create some blue sky uh, situations where people are free to test their ideas. And it's okay if some of the ideas are, are crap. I mean, listen, we all have good ideas and we all have terrible ideas. That's okay. That's part of the creative process. For every 10 ideas that are terrible, you get one really good one. So um, I think empowering your team to be able to um, test ideas and make mistakes, and that's okay. You're not going to get penalized for it. It's like that one didn't work. So let's move on. Then I think it's really important that you allow yourself to look at your competitors, look at what other people are doing and scan the horizons for opportunities that you hadn't thought of previously. And there will always be people out there who are coming up with clever ideas, whether it's now with AI or whether it's people who are uh, doing everything remotely. Uh, for example, we have a, a major uh, TV talent called David Attenborough, um, who perhaps you know from many natural history programs. Uh, we wanted to produce programs with him, but he's in his 90s and it was impossible to get him out onto location to um, uh, to shoot because he would have not been able to be uh, insured. So what we decided to do is we decided to help him shoot all of his links remotely from his house in Richmond in, in the suburbs of London. And he absolutely loves the studio that we created for him and is now able to produce and, and host shows all over the world doing it from his own home. One of the things I'm sure has become clear listening to all the great insights shared by some of my guests I spoke with this year is that as leaders, we need to embrace making changes to the way we lead. That's why I wanted to end this year-end retrospective with another guest I was happy to welcome back to my podcast, Erica Anderson. The last time I spoke with Erica on my podcast was 10 years ago, so it was wonderful having her back on the show talking about her latest book, Change from the Inside Out in episode 125. In this segment, I ask Erica about the fifth step in her change model and, well, have a listen and you'll see why I wanted to share this piece of insight from Erica. This really helps create a wonderful segue to the fifth and final step in your change model, which is keep the change going. Because again, 
here we were talking about making a transition. And I think that's exactly what we're looking at when we get to the fifth step, because I think much like steps one and two, this last step can seem obvious. That's also why we're at risk of overlooking it. And it's because in this case, what we're hoping to do is to make sure that the change we're pursuing sticks, right? And much like a transition where we were, as we discussed at the change arc, we were in this homeostatic notion of how we operate, where things stay relatively stable, the same, and we're transitioning to something where we're accepting this change as being our new normal, if you will, but that we now have this mindset that we had to develop and with it, these new behaviors that will now allow us to remain open and receptive to other changes we'll have to make going forward. So looking at this fifth and final step in your five-step change model, what are some of the things here, Erica, that we need to make note of to to ensure that we really aren't treating change as this one-and-done process, which I can tell you, my work with many leaders, this is the thing a lot of them struggle with, is I just want to get this done so I can focus on the more important stuff, right? And a lot of them laugh when I say that because like, yeah, that's me. I tend to do that. But how do we make sure we're really making this a way for us and our organization to remain agile and adaptive to whatever changes we'll need to take on going forward? Oh, that is exactly the right question. So so uh, one thing is in the uh, second step where you're talking about the vision for the future, you know, what's the future going to be like after this change? One of the things we always encourage people to do is create both a, a vision, you know, a shared picture of success and measures of success. What specifically will change when this uh, change has been successfully completed? So you come back to those measures of success and you really start measuring them. You look to see what's happening because um, that's the best way to keep from wandering off. You know, like, let's look and see if this change is actually having the positive impact that we said it was going to have six months or a year ago. And the other great thing about that is changes, pretty much without exception, large organizational changes have unintended consequences. You, You just can't predict everything. And even your change plan is the best guess you have with the available data. So things are going to come up. And if you're not keeping track, if you're not staying on it, then that can really blow up the whole change and and blow up your credibility as a leader. It's like, wow, this didn't work at all is what everybody's thinking. So I'll give you an example. There, One of the examples I use in the book is a company that decided to change its core, a manufacturing company, its core production process for its key product. And what they decided to do was automate part of the production line a part that was very complicated and took up a lot of people's bandwidth unnecessarily because it could be automated. So they automated that. It worked well. That part of the change worked well. But then one of their measures of success was, as you might imagine, improved cycle time that you know products got made quicker. And that wasn't happening. The cycle time wasn't improving. So they had to really look and see what was happening. And fortunately, they had to gather input from the people on the line who saw it very clearly. What was happening is that the automation part of the line sped it up, but then it went back to humans who couldn't go any faster than they had gone before. So things were piling up. Products were piling up at the end of the automated part of the line. So with the help of the people on the line, they made they implemented a secondary change, which was to divide the post-automation part of the production line into two. 
so that there were you know twice two, twice as many people working on that part of the line. And within a month or two after making that change, they got the cycle time improvements that they were talking about that they they had set as their measure of success. So this is both a great example of keeping the change going and how important it is, and also of making people more open to subsequent changes because one of the one of our change levers, one of the ways that we help people through change is called give control. So giving people a voice, giving people a choice, giving people agency and a change. So by taking the input from these folks on the production line as to what isn't, wasn't working and then getting them involved in improving it, the leadership credibility went up enormously and people then started to feel like, oh, I see this change isn't so bad and we were able to make it better. And I wonder what will happen next. You know, their mindset was much more open and positive toward subsequent changes. I hope you enjoyed listening to this year in retrospective of some of my favorite insights shared by my guests this year. And I hope hearing these segments will not only encourage you to check out the rest of these episodes, but that you also check out the conversations I had with my other guests I spoke with this year. Now, in my show notes for this episode, which you'll find on my website at tavernasir.com LBC, you'll find links to all these episodes along with links to my guests' books if you want to add them to your reading list for 2024. As for myself, I'm already working on our guest list for 2024, and we have some incredible people already lined up who I'm looking forward to speaking with. So I hope you'll continue to join me on this journey of learning how we can do and be better and create the kind of workplaces and work we all need and deserve. Also, if you're making plans for events in 2024 and you're looking for a keynote speaker or corporate trainer to help your leaders and your organization be prepared and ready for what's to come in the months ahead and how to embrace it, I want to encourage you to drop me a line so we can discuss what I can share at your event. The best way to do this is to fill out the contact form on my website at tavinasir.com. You can also find more information about my speaking and workshop facilitation work on my speaking pages, including the topics I cover. And with that, I want to wish you and your family the very best for 2024. Let's hope it's one filled with hope, peace, and opportunities to thrive for everyone. I'm Tavinasir, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe.